Now, this is actually the final week in this sermon series that we've been working through where we're looking at Jesus' final message. The very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples after three years of ministry before in just minutes. It's crazy. Tonight's text that we're going to look this, the text today that Jesus is speaking in the evening time there is just ahead of his arrest. I mean, just ahead of his arrest. In chapter 17, we're talking just minutes away from soldiers entering into the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus being arrested, carried off to these sham trials, tortured through the night, and then by morning time, 9 a.m., they nail him to a cross where he will die, suffer and die on our behalf for our sin. That's where we're at in the story. We are right at the end. But something happens here right at the end that I just think is a wonderful moment that maybe you've overlooked or maybe you hadn't noticed in Scripture before. It comes right at the end of chapter 16. Right at the end of chapter 16, think Jesus has been teaching through the, this evening from dinner time on. We've gone through the lesson. Jesus has gone from the washing of the feet to the Last Supper. Jesus has talked so many things through about the Holy Spirit, about all of what is to come for the disciples. And you have this wonderful thing in chapter 16, verse 29. It says this, Then his disciples said, At last you're speaking plainly, and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything, and there's no need to question you. For this we believe, that you came from God. And Jesus asked, do you finally believe? It's an amazing moment. After three years and after this intimate night of teaching, the disciples have their eureka moment. They say, hey, we finally get it. We don't need to ask you. We just need to trust you. We don't need to question you. We believe you are who you say you are. And then Jesus is going to continue to warn them as he has through the evening. A time is coming. Indeed, it's now here when you'll be scattered. Each one of you going his own way, leaving me alone. Now, he literally is talking about something that's about to happen in just minutes. You're going to be scattered, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I just want you to remember that. He's not alone. What Jesus is heading into, he's not heading into it alone. The Father is with him. And I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, I just love this moment in time. Consider it as a teacher. Jesus is a teacher. He's been with these guys for three years, and now in the very end, after this last night of teaching, they finally, the light bulb comes on. They have this special moment together, and what will Jesus do next? So that the disciples finally get it. They said, we understand there's no need for us to question you, and then Jesus is going to launch into prayer. Now, I just think that today's text is truly extraordinary. I know, I know. I say this a lot. But John 17 is a wide-open window into the most intimate and honest thoughts and desires and passions of Jesus Christ himself. It is by far the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible, and it's Jesus speaking to his Father. And the amazing thing is, he does it in such a way that he allows us to listen in. So we get to hear Jesus in this intimate conversation with his father. and We get a front row seat. So I'm going to read to you 
it in its entirety. John 17. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may, be glo- that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one and only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything that you've given me comes from you, for I gave for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they're not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you would take them out of this world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. They're not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. What a treasure it is for us to have these words. You know, this prayer is called by a lot of New Testament scholars the holy of holies of the New Testament. It's widely known, and maybe the heading in your Bible says, Jesus' high priestly prayer. But what an extraordinary, wonderful gift it is that we get to hear Jesus in this kind of detail speaking to His Father. 
Now, we know that actually prayer was a defining characteristic of Jesus' entire life on this earth. Jesus was a man of prayer. All throughout Jesus' ministry, we know that he retreated away from the pressure, away from the people, away from the crowds, in order to be alone with his Father in prayer. As Luke 5.16 tells us, Jesus, what's the word? Often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I just love this. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of the Gospels, on the night before Jesus called his disciples and made them apostles to follow him, do you know what Jesus spent the night doing? Luke 6, 12 through 13. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. So at the start of Jesus' ministry with his disciples, how did he begin it? With prayer. Here we are at the very end, the very last thing with his disciples. And what's he doing? He's in prayer. And what do we know about Jesus in the time in between? He was a man of prayer. Jesus spent so much of his time, his effort, his energy in prayer before the Lord. So we have some specifics in this prayer that I want to look at. This morning, I want to look at what Jesus was praying for in this amazing, wonderful prayer that we see in chapter 17, because I think these things will really help us and encourage us this morning. So here's number one, and this one might surprise you. The first thing that the prayer begins, Jesus, number one, he prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself. He said in verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. He repeats that again in verse five. Jesus brings honor and praise to the Father by what? By doing everything that the Father sent him to do. The Father sent him on a mission. The Father gave him a specific task. He talks about that in verse 2. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. This is the mission of God. Remember, Jesus' mission is to seek and save those who are lost. He had been sent on a rescue mission by God, and he's accomplishing, accomplished that mission. Everything that God gave Jesus to do, Jesus did. And in doing so, he brought glory to the Father. Can you imagine what amazing glory Jesus had experienced prior to stepping down onto our planet and becoming one of us? Can you imagine what Jesus in life eternal, with the Father and with the Spirit, surrounded by angels and creatures, can you imagine the glory that Jesus had known and experienced, and yet he stepped down from that, and the next thing he knew, he was in an animal stall? with the smell of cattle, that's a little different, isn't it, than the glory that he was used to. Jesus was used to the beautiful praise of angels and multitudes. Instead, he gets the the smell of cattle and sheep. Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Paul puts it like this. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So it might strike you as a bit strange that Jesus opens up his prayer by praying for himself. But the key to understanding this is to understand why Jesus prayed to be glorified. What did he say? Go back and look at it again. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Why? So that your son may glorify you. Bless me, God, so that I can bless you. Glorify me, God, so that I can glorify you. And I'm pointing this out because some of us have a wrong view of Christian humility. Some of us believe that Christian humility means that we never pray for God to help us or to bless us or to prosper us. We believe we don't want to pray for those things because somehow that, that, that's not the humble right thing to do. But Jesus starts off his prayer by saying, God, would you glorify me? But what's the purpose? The purpose of the blessing, the purpose of being glorified was so that he could bless, so that he could glorify God. You know, church, it's a good thing to say, God, I pray that you would bless me as long as you have the next part right. Bless you, why? So that you can be a blessing. It's not just bless me because I want it, I want it. It's bless me because, God, there's so many people in this world that need to be blessed, and I pray that you would use me, glorify me, use this church, bless this church so that we can be a blessing in this world. You can pray that in your own life. In Jesus' final prayer, he prays, God, I pray that you would glorify me so that I can glorify you. Listen, this is important. Most of us pray as if the point of prayer is to get God on our side. As if the point in prayer is to get God on our side. But I got a newsflash for you. The gospel tells us that God is already on our side, that you are his child, that he is for you, that he has promised to prosper you and to bless you. So the question isn't whether or not if, uh, if God wants to do these things. The question is whether or not you're willing to position yourself so that as God does them, you can be a blessing to others. What's the reason? What's the motive? What's the heart? motive behind asking God to bless you? Are you asking him just for your own sake? Or are you asking so that for the benefit of others? Here's the next thing. In Jesus' final prayer, he prays for himself. The next thing, he prays for his disciples. This is where he spends the bulk of his time. Verse 6 says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, but you gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. The bulk of this prayer is going to continue along praying for the disciples. But before we look at what specifically he prays for them, I want to just take a side note and tell you, I believe when I read through this, I really saw, jump off the page, the importance of having Christian friends who are praying for you as part of your walk with the Lord. Let me just tell you, Having a couple of friends, a few, that you know are praying for you is a key essential element to a healthy spirituality, to healthy discipleship, to vibrant Christianity. Because, friends, I can just tell you, how do I say this carefully? I don't want to be careful. I'm going to make a bold statement. I have seen, I have yet to see, 
anyone really vitally, vibrantly living the Christian walk without other people walking alongside of them. No matter how much Bible they've memorized and how much study they do, if you do not have other Christians walking alongside of you, praying for, supporting you, cheering you on, then you will always have a gap in your health. So I want to encourage you. The disciples had Jesus praying for them. It, it was powerful. Who's praying for you? Who do you have? And I'll just give you. So maybe you say, well, I don't have anyone. Well, here's two ways you can get them. Just easy, quick ones. Find a spot to volunteer in and get to know somebody else in the church. When you volunteer, you get to know people. If, if, that, if you're already volunteering, you're saying, yeah, but I really don't have those deep level connections, then join a small group. That's what they're all about. How can you have people know you, that you share life with, that you're rubbing shoulders with, that you get to know on an intimate, personal level, not just that you sit in rows together on a Sunday morning, okay? There's so much more to it than just that. So what's he pray for them specifically? Verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father, so protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Okay. <laughs> Jesus makes a crazy statement here, and we're going to just leave it for a second because we're going to come back to it. Because Jesus is going to say this thing again when he prays for us in just a few minutes. So we're going to leave this here, this may they be one as we are one, and I want to look at another element of his prayer. Verse 15, my prayer is that is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus, on the last night, mere moments away from his arrest, prays that the disciples would not be taken out of this world, but they would be kept by God's power uh, safe from the evil one. Now, I point this out to you. Because there is a common warped version of Christianity that seeks to remove itself away from the world, that believes that isolation is the best way for us to avoid corruption. But let me give you a life point. True discipleship is not isolation from the world. It is living like Jesus within the world. True discipleship is not isolation from the world. It's living like Jesus within the world. I just love how Pastor David Platt, um, who I really uh, appreciate, I've read most of his stuff and I listen to his podcast regularly called Radical. Uh, he said it like this. He said, our mission is not to disinfect Christians and put them on a shelf, but to disciple them and put them into service. See, because what happens if Christians remove ourselves from the world? If we withdraw, if we remove ourselves from the world, then all of the evil, all of the chaos, all of the what's in us, the worst of what's in us, is allowed to flourish if we will engage, if we will witness, if we will live with our fruit on display. Friends, that is the gospel life that we're called to that brings about transformation. We must not withdraw from the world. And I'll tell you, it's so tempting. 
The more we see of the craziness and the evil of the world, it's so tempting for us just to say like, oh man, we're just going to back away from all this. We must engage even more. If we're going to see organizations, places, cities transform with the good news of the gospel, guess what it's going to need? Carriers of the good news of a gospel. So he prays in verse, seven, in verse 17. He says, sanctify them. That means to set someone apart. It means to make them holy. And how does someone get sanctified? Is it through isolation? Through withdrawal? No, he goes on. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. See, Jesus wanted us to live in this world, but he didn't want us to be shaped by this world. So how do we develop our heart and our life while living in this world? It is, as according to Jesus, by knowing, bathing in, being washed by the word of God. You see, the greatest way that we can avoid the lie, the greatest way we can avoid the lie is to know the truth. Your success in this world spiritually, and the, listen, the success of your families, the success of your kids is not going to be based on how well you isolate them away from the lies of culture. It's going to be how well you disciple them in the truth. Isolation will not lead to them growing in a vibrant relationship with God, but knowing the truth will. Jesus said, when you know the truth, it will set you free. Isn't that what we want? People living in the world, but living in freedom. Now, Jesus is specifically concerned with two things when it comes to the Word of God. Two things that we need to be aware of today. Two things that we need to constantly be uh, being made aware of. One is, he said in verse 7, he said, now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. See, I want you to have the confidence that when you read the Bible, that when you come to church on Sunday and hear teaching from the Bible, this is not just practical life lessons from Uncle Kurt, okay? This isn't a TED Talk that I hope encourages you and motivates you so that you can live a better, more moral life. That's not what we are doing here, friends, and this is constantly under attack by the culture we live in and, sadly, in the church, friends. We have to be willing to say that what we have in the Bible is God's words. That it comes from God. That it was written through man's ha- uh, heart and hands, but it was the Holy Spirit that spoke the words. And it is God's words to us. Because many people that I talk to today say things like, well, actually, I think Jesus is pretty cool. I think Jesus is legit. But everybody knows the Bible isn't true. I mean, everybody knows if you, if you just look at it, that the Bible can't be really the Word of God. I mean, it's full of errors, isn't it? And we must, as a people, as a church, contend for the inerrancy of Scripture, that the Bible is perfect, that God spoke it, that it's His Word to us, and that it is what leads us and empowers our life. It's not just a collection of good thoughts about Jesus. It's not just a reliable guide for moral living. In fact, his second concern is verse 8. Jesus says, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. See, this is the second thing when it comes to God's word. I can teach you all of this, 
but I can't make you accept it. That's something that you have to do. That's why we as a church say you need to do more than just attend the Sunday morning meeting. This is why you need a quiet time. It's why you need a place where you can digest, think about, pray about, go deeper into God's Word. It's why we do response time at the end of our message. So you hear what I have to say, but it gives you room to hear what the Lord might be speaking so that you can accept it and apply it into your life. Friends, I said this earlier, but there are some things in God's Word that are much better learned in circles than they are in rows. What I mean by that is there are things that you can hear me say while you sit in rows and chairs, but you need to sit around a room in a small group with other believers and talk them through, accept them, and apply them into your life. It's not enough for us just to be students in a scholarly sense. We must go beyond that to people who accept and apply these truths to our life. Friends, this is so important that we understand this and that we take the next step. Because this is constantly, the world is constantly waging war against God's Word. Why? Because they want to discredit and devalue it because it's the basis of our faith. Friends, remember, how much time have we looked at in this sermon series that God spent talking about the Word and the Spirit? Pretty much the whole of it. Well, why? Because it's constantly uh, relevant and important to our lives that we remember that God's Word is the gift that, that we are to apply to our life and that His Spirit makes all of that possible in and through us. So Jesus first prayed for Himself. Next, He prayed for the disciples. And then this is amazing that we have this. Number three is Jesus prayed for His church. He prayed for you. He prayed for us. He said, my prayer is... Not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. That's us. That's every believer that believes in God through the message, through the work of the Spirit in the apostles' lives, in the founding of the church, in the writing of Scripture. That's us, friends. Verse 21, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want you to see something that's really profound here. Jesus doesn't pray for the world. He prays for believers in the world. In fact, verse 9 earlier, he said, I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you gave me. Now, is this because Jesus doesn't care about the world? No. We know Jesus loves the world. We know that's the reason that he came. We know that he came into the world because he loves the people of this world. But Jesus here specifically is not just praying for the world in general. He's praying for us. He's praying for believers. He's praying for the church. Because, friends, you have to understand, if you go back through this teaching that Jesus has been doing, that God's plan, the hope for the world, is going to be that believers filled with the Holy Spirit, led by God, God's word are going to take the word, take the gospel, take the kingdom of God to places that Jesus never could. That through the church that God was going to send his people on a mission. That's going to come in just a, a, a few short days after his resurrection before he goes and ascends to heaven. He's going to give the great commission. He's going to say, listen, I want you to go. 
I want you to start in your own town and I want you to go to the ends of the earth, to all people groups, but don't go anywhere until the Holy Spirit comes. You see, friends, this is what Jesus is praying for here. He's praying for believers. He's praying for us that we would do what he's called us to do. So one of the ways I'll help you, if you want to learn to pray like Jesus, I'll give you an example with what's going on in Israel right now. Maybe you don't know how to pray. Maybe you look at this situation and you say, well, here's a good pray. I'll teach you this one. God help. That's a good one. God answers that one. But another one they pray is pray for the church. Pray for the body that's gathered in those places. Pray that God would use his church to be his hands and his feet. Pray that God would use his church to bring his mercy and his justice. Pray that God would bless and protect his church. Because that's what Jesus is doing in this prayer. And I think verse 22 may be one of the most shocking verses in all the Bible. Can you read 22 and just think, what did Jesus just say? He said, I have given them, he's speaking of us, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I better read this again. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. The glory of God is in us because the Spirit of God is in us. Remember that promise back in chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, if anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, my Father will love them and will come to them and make our home, and we will come to them and make our home with them. See, God's glory is God Himself living inside His children. It, it, picture this the blinding, majestic glory of God that used to hover over the Ark of the Covenant. The, the, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of, of references to God's glory. God's glory lives now in us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Look at what Jesus is praying for us, friends. He's praying that through us experiencing His glory in us, through us, in our life. He prays, verse 26, I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I may myself may be in them. You see, Jesus has made God known to us and says, this is crazy, look at this. Jesus says, I made God known to you and I will continue to make you you known, to continue to make God known in us so that we can love and have his love in us and through us. You see, Jesus is saying, I've made God known and I'm going to keep doing that. By the Holy Spirit in us, he's doing that work to this day. And what is the point of it? Well, again, let's just word 23 again. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Let me ask you a quick question. How does the world know that God's love is real? 
How does the world know that God is real? How does the world experience God's love? Is it by the way I preach? Nope. Is it by how loud you sing in the worship service? Nope. Is it by how we vote? Nope. It says by our love and through our unity, the world will know that we love him. Church, we've got to face some hard things today. Is our love for each other and our unity that we share together, is that our calling card? Is that our defining characteristic? I'm going to read it again, verse 21. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought, listen, to complete unity. Then the world will know. Then the world will know. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, when we as a church lose our unity, It's because something in our world or in our life has become to us more important in that moment than Jesus himself. Silver Creek Fellowship, the best that I can as your leader, as part of this team, I refuse to let our opinions about secondary issues separate us from unity and loving each other the way that God has clearly commanded and called us to as the church. See, disunity in the church happens when we begin to care about other things over our own pursuit and love for Jesus. When we put other things above that. And church, we must not live this way. God's made so clear. How many times in his last night did he say something like this? I command you, love each other. By this the world will know. By the way you love each other. That our unity and our love would be our calling card. Verse 23, then the world will know that you sent me. So write this last life point down. Love and unity on display in the church is the church's most powerful apologetic. Love and unity on display in the church is the church's most powerful apologetic. In fact, John 13, 34, Jesus said this, A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Band, you can come up. Friends, we live in a world, we live in a time in our world, where because of our social media accounts, our division and disunity has become more amplified and public than ever before. 
When we hide behind our monitor and sit behind our keyboard or into our phone, we can say things about people that we would never say to someone's face and put it out there for the entire world to consume and to see. And what has happened is, friends, all across our culture, we are seeing an erosion of genuine love and unity for each other. Because truly in our culture now, it's this or that. You're for me or you're against me. It's all this way or all that way. And we've lost the ability to love and prefer and care for each other even when we have issues that we don't see eye to eye on. But friends, we must contend for this. I, as your pastor, I'm pleading with you, before you click the send button on that text, before you make that post on social media, ask the Holy Spirit, will this build unity and love for Jesus, or is this about me and mine and my rights and my ability to say what I need to say? Because, friends, we must. Now, I'm not saying we never have public discourse. I'm not saying we don't engage. I'm saying what is the motivation behind our engagement? What's the desire behind our engagement? Friends, we are heading into seasons of life in our country and in our world where more and more us as Christians are going to need to be aware of what we are doing and how we are living our lives on display for the world to see. I want to be the kind of church that is known for our love and our unity, where the people in our, in our town know that there's a place that loves them and cares about them. That doesn't mean we affirm everyone's lifestyle. It doesn't mean that we call sin not sin, but it does mean that no matter who you are and what you've done, there's a place that people will love you and care for you and pray for you. There's a spot for you to meet Jesus and have your life transformed. Friends, this is what Jesus is praying for us in his last night, with his last breath, with his last words. He's praying, God, let they be one as we are one. I don't know about you, but I got a long way to go in that. I'm so quick to let petty differences, disagreements come between me and my relationships and friendships. And I just want to, today, to in this place, for us to be reminded that Jesus is calling us to radical love and unity. 